0: I'm Alex Shaw
1: I'm Sharon Shaw And And
0: welcome welcome to to... School of Movies (laughs) Kiki's Delivery Service
2: Come along on a ride you'll never forget With an all-new feature-length movie adventure Go! Coming to video for the very first time
3: Hold on!
2: Kiki's Delivery Service It's a journey of friendship
0: And courage with Kiki, a witch in training who's just getting the hang of flying.
3: Carry me away, as light as a feather. Chase the clouds from the ground in the big blue sky. Don't wanna watch it all go by. Soon gonna fly.
2: Hold on there, son. It's the story of Kiki's quest for independence.
3: Feel the wind. <laughs> And
2: all her extraordinary adventures,
3: She's got it! She's saved the
2: featuring Kirsten Dunst as Kiki and Matthew Lawrence as Tombo.
4: Kiki's delivery service coming this summer only on video.
0: Our commissions season continues with the first straight up anime we've covered on a main event show. Next time we have another window open, depending on how this one is received, provided Sharon and I aren't bombarded with suggestions for anime that we should watch, we might do another. This episode was commissioned by three listeners, two of whom are here tonight, which again is something we rarely do, but it comes down to who this is and how well we know them. So hello again to regular guest Brendan Agnew of Synapse,
4: Hello, yourselves.
0: And one of our leading ladies from the New Century Multiverse, Theo Lee, the voice of Princess Gwendolyn, Truth Arlington, Yagana, and very soon, Stardancer and Penthecelia Renwick.
5: <laughs> Hello.
0: Hello, Theo. And the third backer for this one was Aaron Good. Thank you, Aaron. Oh, also we have Lyra Shaw here to add anything that she might think of, as this was one of her absolute favourites as a child, yet seeing it again for the first time in years now, at Kiki's age, may have changed her perspective somewhat. Hello, Lyra. Hi. Kiki's delivery service was Studio Ghibli's fourth film after Castle in the Sky, Grave of the Fireflies and My Neighbor Totoro, adapted from the 1985 novel by Eiko Kadona, released in Japan in 1989 and directed by the legendary Hayao Miyazaki, later given an American language track in 1998 with Kirsten Dunst, Janine Garofalo, Tress McNeil and the late great Phil Hartman. Oh, and I just found out from that trailer, Matthew Lawrence from Mrs. Doubtfire as Tombow. By the way, I'm going to call it an English language track to differentiate between subs and dubs, which I actually think is can be quite harmful to anime, but uh, we'll weigh in that maybe on this one. Uh, it proved massively popular around about the time that Princess Mononoke and then Spirited Away caught some serious Western attention for this most venerated of Japanese animation studios, assisted in no small part by Disney distribution. Kiki's Delivery Service tells a simple tale of a young witch who moves to the big city to make a career for herself, and tonight we're going to talk about what meaning we can glean from the goings-on in this gorgeous, peaceful, heartfelt work of art. Question one. The way I've I've, uh, uh, framed this is I've got a bunch of bullet points that are question talking points for you folks. So, uh, number one. What does the way that Kiki's family are set up at the beginning before the opening credits tell us about Kiki herself and her situation?
4: This is sort of where Miyazaki kicks off his, um, at least for this film, his penchant for combining very recognisable mundanity with very fantastical elements because you have a a recognizable not quite like nuclear family but a, a recognizable like mom dad daughter and the daughter's going to you know go through some sort of some sort of ceremony um that has to do with with coming of age because obviously she's she's hitting you know that sort of threshold um but also they're witches and so uh, you you've got this very familiar sense of okay, I, I understand the, this sort of family dynamic, but then there's this added element that is woven into it very um, you know, very sort of just matter-of-factly. So the, the movie is telling you very definitively up front about what sort of tone we're going to be going for with this. It's going to be um, very recognizable and, and very emotionally uh, anchored, but it's also going to have some very fantastical elements to it.
1: I'd say the way the the family dynamics and, in particular, what's going on with Kiki herself in this opening part is a way of very clearly setting up what her drive throughout the film is going to be. She's reached that point where she's not a child anymore. She's not mature enough to know yet what direction she wants to go in but she knows she needs to move out of here not because it's unpleasant quite the contrary the way it's set up she's obviously got very caring parents she's got you know lots of wide open space as shown by the the rolling hills and the open countryside Um, and the I, I wouldn't necessarily say that there is an air of a particular restriction and, and traditionality around her, but it just feels like she needs to find her own path. She needs to do something in her own way. She's looking to move her life onto its next phase, and by doing this, or in order to do this, she wants to introduce a bit more excitement, a bit more stimulation. It doesn't feel exactly that it's boring. But she's ready for more and it just feels like it's it's a growing up because it's the right time. You step out of the door on the hero's journey in this case because now is the right time.
0: But she doesn't return. She sends a letter home, but she at the very end it's not her. Like she, she remains out there in the world, which yeah, is a variation is, on the. Hero's this is
1: journey. too short and simple to be an entire hero's yeah, journey. it
0: has elements. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it is—it's it's an uncomfortable home. Like it's, it's growing a little too.
1: Yeah, it, it's actually no. It, I was going to say it's not uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's a little bit too yeah. bit too comfortable. Um, but she, the, you see, from the way that she interacts with her parents, that they've she has inherited things from both of them which she's going to carry forward with her her dad's got that sort of slightly klutzy element about him um, and is is obviously very caring and loves her a lot and her mum is a witch as well so clearly these are the footsteps that she's going to follow in um and her mother gives her as well there's a scene where she she makes this dress for her and it's like Kiki's saying, well, it's I love it, but there's other colours that would suit me better. But her mum's like, well, this is the traditional um, witch way of doing things. This is how people will know you're a witch because you're wearing the black dress. And her mum keeps coming back to this idea of you want the old faithfuls in this situation. You want the old reliables because they've been time tested. And, and so we know that they're going to work.
4: And one of the things that Kiki, we see hints of this early on, is she's very determined to be her own sort of witch, growing up with her mom being the village witch. And what we can surmise is kind of a small town because she's very impressed with even larger towns and small cities. She clearly doesn't want to just be her mom's daughter, who is also a witch, and she's very... Uh, very determined to to do this now and do this quickly as she's starting to self-actualize and and figure out who she's going to be as an adult and she wants to stake out that territory very definitively.
6: One thing I did notice was that everybody in her village was very calm and nice around her family and it's a big change when she gets to the new town and everybody's like
1: who are you? Mm, yeah, everyone feels very relaxed about them, and they feel very accepted, don't they? The presence of witches in the world isn't treated as
5: something that's you know like to be feared. It's not like mutants in the MCU. Mm. It's it's like oh, I've never met a witch before. Is this is the same way you'd say oh, I've never met a train conductor before? <laughs> it's it's very like yeah, there are witches, and, and it's, it's a thing, you know it's it's no big deal and it's it's kind of refreshing to have a, a setting where that's a normal thing to be albeit not as common as say a florist or you know a street sweeper or whatever mm-hmm. um it's just like oh neat there's a witch in town cool what's what's for breakfast <laughs> is it's it's refreshing rather than oh there's a witch in town better not go see her she'll turn you into a newt you'll get better
0: <laughs> it's pancakes by the way um what did you call your dog theo i forget
5: her name is kiki oh. <laughs>
0: I didn't catch it during a recording, but Theo said mutants in the MCU. Of course, the MCU doesn't have mutants yet, and I'm assuming she just meant Marvel, since the Fox X-Men films don't really explore that properly. It's more about Wolverine's juice. But there is a prime opportunity for the MCU to actually portray mutants the way they have been in the X-Men comics, and in fact, even more ruthlessly, when it comes to drawing uncomfortable parallels with maligned minorities. In the modern age. Anyway, back to witches. Okay, uh, so how did Miyazaki and company make the city itself? Does it have a name?
1: Uh, no, I don't think so.
0: Yeah, how did, how did uh, Ghibli make the city a character? Oh, and it does have a name. It's Korikel, based very strongly on Stockholm in Sweden, which Miyazaki visited as a child, and the nearby Swedish city of Visby.
4: They start off very... Definitively, like showing you a sense of the uh, of the main geography because one of the first big shots is that clock tower, so you get this sense of it is a it's a big city um, because you've got the large clock tower that lends it a sense of um, like it feels more modern than something like a you know a more sprawling older style village, um, but it also sets it at a very specific like uh, point in time with the way that it's showing technology, so it's this. Um, it's not quite steampunk but it doesn't feel too terribly far removed from some of the stuff that was going on in like castle in the sky mm. so it it feels like this this recognizably semi-modern city but there's room for just like a little bit of playfulness at the edges so that when you get things like a a girl riding around on a broom trying to save someone from a runaway dirigible, that feels like, okay, yeah, that could probably happen if it were a really bad Friday.
1: That's a thing.
0: Hayao Miyazaki was born in 1941, and that explains a hell of a lot about his aesthetic. He is living in and brings us back to a late 1940s, so often in his films, uh, one that is almost always either untouched by war or healing from war. In this one, very specifically, he was designing a European city in an alternate 1950s where the Second World War hadn't happened at all. Castle in the Sky had a bit more conflict in it as obviously Nausicaa, his first and non-Ghibli film, um, although a lot of the animators went into uh, Ghibli. And of course, Porco Rosso absolutely uh, centered around conflict but um, a lot of the time he presents us with this world that isn't you know in in the midst of a pitched battle and it's the technology usually corresponds with that and mm. they don't tend to like it's refreshing not to see flip phones <laughs> <laughs> or uh, uh, you know just the internet in general and like it's a very much an analog world and there's uh, a join between rural and urban that's uh, that kind of still leaves the uh, the the wide areas touched by nature. I mean, he, the, the guy is absolutely dedicated to bringing us a beautiful version of nature that's often quite uh, overpowering. You know, Princess Mononoke; it, it can be almost like something that would swallow up. Um Humankind, mm.
1: I think you're onto something about the the absence of war, not necessarily the absence of conflict um, in his worlds, but the the either healing from or it just isn't there, and I think where the the overlap with steampunk comes is in uh, a sort of a what if the technology that we use in this world is driven by something other than the military
0: yeah. Though the military do have a presence in his mm, films, yeah,
1: well, they're not absent mm. um, completely. But there's, and I, I think the, I suppose the only hints of it that you get in this really are the police. Mm. Um, but um, but the, what I like about the introduction to the city once they get onto the ground, because um, you've got these big sweeping shots coming into it that make it look very appealing. It's this coastal um area it's very all the buildings are very white and it looks very clean and um you've sort of got the seagulls flying around that you can almost smell the salt in the air it's it's very very different or certainly very uh, contrasting to the the rolling hills of the countryside that she grew up
0: in and there's remnants of medieval uh, architecture there, you've got the mm. cast the wall in yeah. the background that bisects yeah. it
1: indeed, and and some of the ways that the uh, the buildings are constructed as well and it gives it that sense of having been there for a long time, it's a, mm. it's a fixed part of the world, but I love the fact that once they get down on the ground you get your first uh, read of it through Gigi and because he's so kind of um, sardonic Sardonic and cynical about it You get this, um, you know He's he's acting unimpressed by it You know, the buildings, the cars, the hustle and bustle But it's totally a defence mechanism And and you get that with There's too many people if you ask me He's um, kind of verbalising Something that In spite of all her enthusiasm and excitement Kiki has to be feeling That this is very overwhelming Because she's just never been in that kind of environment before
7: Maybe we better
8: rethink
2: our plan. Frankly, I think this is a major insult. Crows used to serve witches and do what you told them.
9: That was a long time ago, okay?
2: How about if we go in after dark? Go in, get it, get out.
9: We won't be able to make it in time. Unless we buy ourselves some time. You gotta be kidding! You can just pretend to be the doll until I find the real one.
0: What is Gigi's role in this story,
8: the
5: story. one of them.
0: kind of yeah
5: yes uh, he's what Kiki is feeling that she doesn't express herself he's he's kind of her conscience in a way um, also sort of like he, he expresses things that she's not saying aloud necessarily
4: mm-hmm he's definitely one of the ways in which we, we see her and her abilities to communicate. And one of the, one of the things that Kiki has, has problems with as the film goes on. And as she hits a a very low period is she, it it gets harder for her to communicate because just the, she's so emotionally wrung out and it's, it's, there's just so many things that she's experiencing um, that, it's it's in a way like when you're when you're going through like a really bad mental health day, there are some times where it's just really hard to talk about that. And so one of the the key roles I think that Gigi plays is being so communicative with her and being one of the people that or, or characters that that she's you know constantly interacting with. When that goes away, we feel that in that um, that long stretch where she's just um, where she's lost so much of mm. what she felt made her special.
0: Also, because she's on her own, it gives her someone to talk to, to verbal... Like, Gigi serves us, the audience, because Kiki can say that to us without having to come off as someone who verbalises everything or whom we hear the innermost thoughts of all the time. If she has someone to talk to, it also allows her to be slightly isolated without another human being there. I suppose it's like um, an animal companion in a lot of the Disney films, like... Flounder. (laughs) Flounder in The Little Mermaid. Cascal in uh, Tangled, Harley Quinn in Batman, the animated series for the Joker.
4: (laughs) And there, there is almost a sense of um, when, when there's a very sad beat in um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame where Quasimodo's song with the gargoyles Mm. ends, and it's clear that there's all this fanciful stuff he's, you know, been imagining and this whole conversation that he had with him, like clearly didn't happen. Um, there's there's a sense of that when you when you see um, Kiki just um, in her room, and I can't remember the name of the artist, but the artist comes to her artist friend comes to visit her. Oh, and, Ursula, Ursula, um, and and Gigi, who you know for for like the first almost half of the movie is is constantly having conversations with her when she's just puttering about in her room. He's just acting like a cat, mm. and so yeah, you just like oh yeah, no, she's been she's been up here. And she's had, you know, friendly and warm interactions with people, but so much of the time she's just been up here in her loft by herself with her cat. And that's that's a lot to ask of a 13-year-old girl.
3: Hmm.
0: So what does Kiki want to do most, and what stands in her way?
6: She wants to be useful. Mm-hmm. She wants to... They describe it almost as a, like a little joke at the beginning, but she's actually serious about it. She doesn't want to come home a failure. Mm. Which is why the snooty, more...
0: The stuck-up witch.
6: Yeah, that hmm. one. That, that witch kind of intimidates her. Yeah,
0: she, she's like, I'm already someone, and this is my city. I'm getting off here. One witch per city. Bye. Theo. <laughs> Thea?
5: she she wants to establish herself as herself she wants to figure out who she is um you know and she she can't really do that in her mother's shadow uh yeah, her mother's a, a great person i mean i we we should all be so lucky to have a mother as supportive and nice as kiki's mom but kiki needs to figure out who she is and the thing standing in her way is herself.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: And that, that's, that's the thing in lo- a lot of Miyazaki's films, is that the, the conflict is off, often the characters themselves. They get in their own way. They, they get up in their own heads, and they, they, they're their own stumbling blocks. And getting past that is the conflict
0: Ah, so when Miyazaki does that, he's a genius. When Marvel do that, they have a villain problem. I suppose that's where uh, Gigi comes back in again because when they've uh, when they're there for the first day, which is usually the most tentative time for anything, Uh, anything big. I think he says at least twice, can we go to another city? I bet there's better cities out there. He he
1: nudges for either moving forwards or moving back. I think at one point, not too long after, he says, when can we go home? Um, So she's trying to settle where they are, and he's trying to pull her in either direction. And obviously these are the elements of herself that are pulling her in either direction. Mm -hmm. But one thing I think um, I noticed seems to be the uh symbolic item for her um her creative self that she's trying to develop um and that she's trying to grow into is the broom and yeah. there's a there's a nod in this to the concept of red shoes now mythologically um in old fairy tales that there's, there's a uh, there's a story about Um, red shoes that are bestowed by the devil and they basically dance you in a a way that you can't stop there's there's a couple of of moments in this where she sees red shoes in a shop and is drawn to them but doesn't buy them so they are not fundamentally symbolic to her but the broom takes the place of that item in this story so Mm. she starts out with this little broom that she's made herself she says she spent all morning making it and this is the broom that she wants to leave on this is the this, this little handcrafted life that she wants to take out into the world, and her mum says. No, because she doesn't trust yet that Kiki's self is strong enough and reliable enough to carry her out there. So she says, take me instead. Take mine. Take the old one that's been tried and tested, that's lasted a long time. That way we know it works. That, when Kiki starts on her downward spiral, is the one that gets broken She then makes a new staff for that broom, thereby bringing the elements of her own handcrafted self into the traditional elements of what she's brought from her mother. But in the final analysis, the broom that brings her to the conclusion of this particular journey is not one she made, and it's not one that she was given by her mother. It is just one that she grabs because the moment requires it. Need and urgency end up being the thing that drive her to, get back to being herself and that's the broom she still has in the sequence in the credits at the end. Lyra noticed that she was still riding that She's one. She's kept it. So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah,
0: Nicely done.
4: There's almost a tossed off a um, couple of comments when she's about to leave talking about your witch's talent um, the the stuck-up witch mentions that her mother's is clearly potions and they they don't keep coming back to this over and over again throughout the film but we do touch on the the thing that Kiki wants to find out what her talent is and and hasn't figured that out yet um, we know that she can fly a broom but that seems to be something that basically any witch can do what we what we see her, in in terms of how she discovers that over the course of the film is tied directly in Sharon to the point you made about the broom um, because Kiki's talent is not necessarily a very specific witch thing it's how her her empathy will drive her to, to act above and beyond what would normally be considered required for, for a person in society. Um, The way she goes the extra mile with, with the doll to, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to bring that to the kid who maybe doesn't care that the way she helps bake that pie in the, the wood burning stove to take to the girl who doesn't even really give it, give a darn about it. Um, And, and again, the way she will, just grab something that might work when she has to save the life of a friend is that's, that's her talent. That's what makes her special. That's what gives her that magical push. And so the, the broom is very clearly a, you know, a symbolic representation of that. It was inside her the whole time. Um, But as you said, it it is also about her discarding the, the very tangible aspects of tradition and methodology in her magic and reaching for something a bit more esoteric when it comes to to finally getting that magic back. Mm.
1: And her quote-unquote skills are all contextual. They depend very much on the circumstances that she's presented with. And if those circumstances aren't happening, she is standing behind the counter in the bakery going, I don't know what to do with myself.
4: Mm. And what what really I think the the broom symbolizes it incredibly well is how just when it breaks that's kind of when her her emotional connections to so much of the world breaks as well um she's she's so dependent on those connections and and she even stylizes her entire business model of i've got this broom i can fly i can do this it becomes this logo and then, once the broom breaks, she's just sitting there, having to look at that logo in the mirror, going, "That's not me anymore who Who am I now that I can't feel that way?" She
5: doesn't hesitate uh when she's working these 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 interpersonal problems she doesn't She doesn't stop to think, "Well, should I fix this or should I help this person?" She thinks, "How am I going to do this? How am she's I going to fix solver. this Yeah she it's, she doesn't think about, you know, am i going to do it? She she just does it.
0: It's ironic that she's a problem solver cuz it's almost like solving the problems in some cases creates more problems. The um uh, I think her enemy in this scenario is time because she wants to dedicate herself to every job that she's got. You know, in t- entirely, but time does not allow for that. So when I pointed this out, when the, uh, the she gets to the house of the old lady who's been tapping the oven for 25 minutes that it would have taken to heat it up and 40 minutes that it would have taken to bake the pie, the pie should be ready right now. And she's like, oh, this thing won't work. It's just an old thing like me. And it's like, (laughs) Kiki's like, just look slightly to the right. There's a stone (laughs) oven right there. Oh, for that, we'd need logs. And for that, we'd have to go out to the log shed that we happen to have. Okay, (laughs) I guess I'll do that for you. But, like, Kiki isn't frustrated. She's like, no, no, I'll help you. I love doing this stuff. And she runs out and gets logs and does that thing that diligent work of um, Miyazaki uh, heroes and heroines who just, you know, like Chihiro in uh, um, Spirited Away has to work her ass off to be able to work her way out of the mystical land she's been confined to and to get her parents back. And there's this almost folklore style level of um, not toil, but like a good day's work Mm. that uh, Kiki has to go through. But, But doing that, adds extra time to what ends up being a to her a thankless task. She's late and the kid didn't want it anyway. She's like, "Ugh, a disgusting herring pie." And like there is a whole scene dedicated near the end to no 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 no. This little shit, sorry, <laughs> may not have appreciated that. But you made the day of the little old lady. You ma- you made her so happy, and pr- especially because she probably tries to relate to her granddaughter, and her granddaughter's like, ah,
2: grandma, you're always talking about herring
0: or something like that. So, like, effectively, what Kiki's done is given the, this old lady something far greater than just a little bit of extra time, just a little bit of extra uh, attention to detail but it can be really dispiriting when you when your hard work and effort is met with contempt or indifference or scorn that can be like especially if that's the only thing like if i release an episode of new century and the only thing anyone says about it is uh you you made a mistake around about the four, 14 minute mark uh, or or you know I didn't like how this person acted in this episode, and there's nothing else from anyone else yet. I'm like, oh, why do I bother? (laughs) Which, I mean, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, Kiki is an artist of sorts. Like, she's working really, really hard to express herself through her work
1: mm, yeah which ursula sums up nicely when she points out that the spirit that moves her to paint is the exact same thing that moves asana to bake and the exact same thing that moves kiki to fly and
0: she yeah she equates that with magic mm. so when she starts to lose her powers of flight and understanding animals what might this represent
6: art blocks
0: okay go into that <laughs> You've been doing a lot more art and compositions recently, haven't you, than normal?
6: Well, it's been difficult because I actually spend a lot more time drawing than I make products for because I get halfway through the drawing and I go, ugh, it's crap, and then just bin it. It's it's disheartening to go through art blocks because, one, it feels like you can't do anything right, and two it feels like you can't do anything else with your time
1: and you can't do anything. Mm. It hurts. Mm. So, like, if I'm not going to paint or draw or animate, then who am I? Who am I? (laughs) Which is kind of what Kiki's going through, isn't it? If I can't fly, am I even a witch anymore?
0: She's defining herself by her work alone. Mm. Mm. And the... Not so much the doing of the work as the end product of the work. As in just waiting to get results mm. and just hoping that what you do is liked.
1: Yeah. But this is the thing, from an, from a, the perspective of somebody who creates what can be interpreted by the world as artistic, it's very difficult to get financial recognition for the process of creating those things effectively what everybody expects artists to do is make your stuff for free and then if we really like it you can sell it to us and that has this horrible connotation of you are only worth what you can convince somebody else to pay for the end product of the thing you're making
4: when we watched this um about a year ago um the first time we showed it to Marion, when Marion was just starting to watch movies, uh, my wife described this as a movie about millennial burnout, mm. uh, because Kiki is is basically she's taking something that she she loves doing, it's a hobby, and she's turning it into work, and then she finds out that that's a terrible freaking idea, and it's you know once once your hobby becomes your work, what do you do for a hobby anymore, and you you get to the point where you just can't even bother with it, and. You know, I know that's something that's um, a a few other people have I've seen catch on to it. And there's definitely been like videos and viral threads about it um, since then. Um, But I definitely feel that resonates, especially right now, um, because a lot of people just economically have to turn what they love doing into their their source of revenue and that's when things get extra difficult because that's how you're defining yourself doubly is by this thing that you're doing and also trying to live.
0: We watched a video by a Screen Prism earlier today that uh, uh, correlated the millennial artist's reason to work being to do something that they really love.
1: That serves a purpose, I think. Yes, that to was it. A...
0: To, to, to be of use, to mm. be of, to make a difference. Yes, that's yeah? it. What Lyra said. Whereas previous generations' reasons to work included learning new skills and making money. So there's definitely a generational divide, and obviously the uh, uh, you know this was made in 1989 when a lot of millennials weren't even born or were very very young, and it just happens to be very applicable now. Although of note is the fact that when this film was made in 1989, Miyazaki wasn't familiar with girls and modelled his adaptation of Kiki from the book on the 13-year-old daughter of one of the producers, Toshio Suzuki. Their remit was to make a film that would capture the hearts of teenage girls who were going through the changes in age, biology and thinking that Miyazaki stated makes them a bit of a handful. I guess it worked.
5: I I agree wholeheartedly with uh, Brendan said it's it's, uh, the now that I have to do this as a job it's not fun anymore I haven't drawn anything for myself just for fun Uh, a few random exceptions I haven't done that in years because I have to be creatively on artistically at work for eight plus hours a day, mm. five days a week. And when I get home, uh, sometimes the last thing I wanna do is pick up my stylus again and do more staring at a screen and putting points on a, a graphic canvas. And it's I'm trying to, to get back into it and getting some new toys helped uh, sort of inject a sort of new aspect into it. But I, that, that burnout is real. And it's it's like turning on a rusty faucet. I've got to get past the rust and the gunk before I can get the clear water.
1: I I think there's a key element of it there in what Brendan said as well about if, if what you did for your hobby is now your job, what do you do for your hobby? What do you do to relax? What do you do to recharge? And ultimately, it's Ursula who gives Kiki the magic words, which are switch off relax, go for a walk, look at the scenery, nap at noon.
0: She already has started doing that, but Mm. what difference does Ursula make in this? Uh,
1: Well, for a start, she gives her permission to do it rather than it just being, I'm doing this because I don't know what else to do. Because Mm. it's coming from somebody else, it feels like a good idea. But I think one of the really important elements that Ursula brings to the story is she gives Kiki a positive feedback loop rather than a negative one. Because not only is Kiki... Um, inspired by Ursula, she's inspired by her paintings, Um, Kiki herself has inspired Ursula, not by something that she did, but just by something that she is. And so she gives her that sense of just, you know, here in this place, in this moment, in this cabin, in this wood... I can just be me and for this person that's enough. That's enough for them to uh, feel that I bring something to being in their presence and that makes me feel like I'm serving a purpose even if I'm not flying.
5: Kiki has a huge impact on everyone she comes across simply by being present and I don't mean just by being there. I mean she's actively present in their lives for uh, however long she's encountered them, and they remember her. Like the 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 snotty girl with the herring pie. Later she turns up and she's like, "Oh, I remember her. She made a delivery to my house." And she's she doesn't sound you know like snarky about it. She's she's like, "Oh, I remember that girl. She was." She's like, "Oh, hey, it's that witch. That's cool. Whatever."
4: So much of the interactions she has or or that we see people have are about, like, these people recognizing her value. And one thing that Ursula does is is she – it's framed in a a sort of, like, surface-level way of when she wants to paint or sketch Kiki – and Kiki's like, well, why would you want to do that to me? I'm just this plain girl. And, and Ursula says like, no, you're, you know, you're pretty. You've got, you know, you have value. These, these aren't positive associations just because you can fly or just because you can do this or can do that. You have value by yourself regardless of anything else that you do.
0: There is a certain amount of privilege in, with those other kids, though. Did you notice that uh, um, everyone her own age is uh, a lord of leisure? Like uh, they're, they're they're bombing around in a car, like they're driving a car for a start, which seems to be way too uh, much uh, responsibility for kids. But it was an alternate 1955, so different alternate time. They, they just seem to be enjoying their summer, and they they almost seem not so much contemptuous but just kind of surprised that Kiki's working her ass off and she's their
4: age they're very privileged and it it they walk a tight line uh, especially with Tombo of recognizing her and and being interested in her just because of one unique thing about her um it and and Kiki responds very very clearly how she feels about that of like no you don't get to you know, be interested in me just because I fly around on a broomstick. Um, and I, I appreciate that that she asserts her self forth in that way of like, I'm not going to talk to you just because you're interested in, you know looking at me, do my fancy tricks. Um, but they they definitely are a very solid contrast with her because they're trying to do this thing that she does. you know, they're interested in flying. and to them it's this hobby that they can afford to sink a whole bunch of time and money into whereas it's something that she just does and is still, like, not able to do much outside of that. She doesn't have that sort of leisure that they do.
6: I do know one thing that annoyed me throughout the entire movie. Tombo never, ever calls her Kiki. Just says Miss Witch. Okay. Uh...
0: (laughs) Defining her by uh, one characteristic rather yeah, than the which, name that she's got. Okay.
6: Which makes her feel like she's.
0: It's like, like being called artist girl.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. Which or ma- red
0: if you have red hair.
6: Yeah. And it makes her feel self conscious because yeah. halfway through the movie she's thinking of love and she wants someone to go off into the sunset with, which why the snooty witch makes her feel a little bit self-conscious because she does love fortunes. Also, Uh if if Tombo calls
0: her Miss Witch when she can't fly, she feels she can't even live up to the nickname he's given her, defining herself.
6: Which makes her feel even more useless. Mm.
0: By the way, you mentioned it before, the uh, the, the feeling um, dejected, but the when the rain starts pouring down on her because she took extra time to get the, the herring pie done right and if she would just gone it wouldn't have rained on her that is one of those I did this to myself and then you start to feel really sorry for yourself and at the same time really just angry with the course of events that have brought you here. So you're sort of slaloming back and forth between I did this to me and the world did this to me. It's a a strange um, tug of war of responsibility. But either way, it makes you feel like absolute crap and if you end up ill as a result of it, it's just a lasting punishment.
1: Well, she has such a, a succession of blows to her self-worth in that in the space of about half an hour. She gets the, you know, she's, she's on a little bit of a high because of being able to help the lady make the pie in the first place and then she gets that Crushed by the unappreciative granddaughter. Mm. Uh, then it rains on her. Uh, then. No, no, it
0: rained before.
1: Oh, it so was. She granddaughter. She's okay.
0: absolutely soaked to the bone. So and She's, she's like, ah, yeah. herring pie. And she's like, and it's wet. Yeah, sorry, it got raining. Yeah, so,
1: that, so then she's soaked to the skin on top of that and feeling wretched. And then she realises that she's way too late to, to go with Tombo to the party. And anyway, her clothes are all wet. And then she gets poorly. And it's just this. Crash after crash mm. after crash,
0: and it also means that uh, any like semblance of possibility of, of just being able to take a break from this and have a normal life fall by the wayside. Mm. It's like you know you've got this you know trial after trial after trial, and then punishment after that.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing that she's thirsting for, um, having found a place and established her career first steps is human connection. She's, as Lyra pointed out, she's looking out of the window at the girl who goes off on the motorbike with the, with the boyfriend. Yeah. Um, she lights up when her neighbour, the fashion designer, walks past and waves at her. She uh, really has sort of this, um, even though she's been quite... Uh, dismissive of Tombo himself, the fact that he's invited to her, her to this party makes her feel like, oh, there are people here, and I might actually be able to to connect with people, and that's a big part of what she's um, what she's feeling the lack of. Um, it was the element I found the hardest to relate to, but um, but yeah.
0: <laughs> it feels like when she starts to lose her power, I'm actually reminded oddly of, or I wonder if this might have affected this film, Spider-Man 2. Yes. When Peter starts basically losing his zest for being Absolutely. Spider-Man. and he
1: has to start wearing his glasses again because even yeah. his eyesight goes fuzzy.
0: He loses his magic ability to be Spider-Man. And one of the main reasons is that he wants to just be a normal guy with Mary Jane, played by Kirsten Dunst, who also plays oh, nice. Kiki. Yeah. So it's a
4: strange kind of loop.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: I mean, there's, there's actually a lot of um, similar points along their arcs in their respective films that, you know, Spider-Man 2 is essentially Kiki's delivery service with a couple extra B-plots in an act. <laughs> You're not wrong, right? Right down to oh no, someone I care about is in danger, and also maybe up high. I guess I better be Kiki, and uh, I mean I better be Spider Man again.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's very true. How we've mentioned him so many times. What does Tombo represent, or what other things that we haven't already said does Tombo maybe? What, what 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 part does he fulfil in this story?
6: I probably think it's the part of her that is undeniably focused on her being a
1: witch, on her being perfect. Okay, so like he brings an added pressure to this because... Oh, yeah, because one of the things that he's drawn to her about is the fact that she flies.
3: Mm. One of the only things. Yeah,
1: so the fact that she then starts to slip in that makes her feel like she's going to lose that connection um, that's so fragile and so new. Mm.
4: He's also sort of representative of her acceptance uh, by the entire city, um, and and how she judges that because she wants to to be someone who's recognized for her talents, but she also like wants to have that recognition come on her own terms, and so he's you know she she doesn't want to just be seen as like this this new novelty, um, and so. She she kind of goes back and forth to how she feels about his interactions with her, and she's not really sure about about how she feels about his friends group because it's this brand new like social circle and and situation and environment that she didn't have much of an uh, of a parallel for in her previous life. So it's like this this is the first time that she's had like a group of peers um that are her own age we see her interact a lot with some of the younger kids of her village but this is the you know we don't see her going to school but this is sort of like a you know a new kid coming to school a new school for the first time sort of situation
0: also there's the the fact that he so desperately wants to fly himself and this is like chombo may as well be a young miyazaki because he himself was kind of uh, has always been fixated on flying and just the Air is his primary element throughout uh, all of these films. While they feature water and fire and earth, most definitely, air is the one that lifts Miyazaki up, and that's the thing he wants to share with us the most, it seems. It's freedom. Yeah, it's freedom. And what's the name of the airship? Spirit of Freedom. (laughs) Yeah, the airship is called the Spirit of Freedom. But again, of note, the airship presents a danger to Tombo, who had not been taking the danger seriously up until that point so and, and you know since tombo wants to fly this much and that's what kiki can do as her talent it just it suggests that there's going to be a like it's very like good shorthand for this could work and we don't have to push this too hard to suggest that the two of them might have a real rapport but also he represents moving forwards there's a the, the, there's a whole element of this and it all it comes with gigi Uh, not being able to understand or, 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 you know, not even being a a special cat anymore. And it seems to, there's a bittersweetness to the idea that Kiki herself is growing up. And the fact that he's now just a normal cat suggests she's moving away from um, the slightly more fantastical elements of childhood, which is, like I say, bittersweet, but she still gets to keep elements of that with her she keeps gigi on her broom in one version of the film at the end gigi ends up on her shoulder and the last words he says are just like a cat noise in the original american language track it's phil hartman going meow to suggest he's back and that that get you know gets to continue he also threw in the line when gigi is at kiki's feet trying to jump onto her shoulder Kiki can you hear me but without that line there's a definite ambiguity as to where Gigi sits with Kiki from this point on
1: yeah and particularly since you then get the uh, the credit sequence where you see Gigi with kittens that mm. are clearly his which suggests that he is engaging in real cat life
0: mm. I forget. Is there are there white cats that there look like are, the mother yeah, and black cats that absolutely. look like him? Absolutely. There's
1: one three white cats and Lady one and the tramp black rules. cat that looks like him. Yeah. Okay. It's totally Lady in the Tramp rules.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's um like ultimately Tombo represents Kiki moving on and doing something else with her life that's not just the witchy side of things.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, that ties back to the Um, the desire for human connection which is ultimately not really anything to do with with being a witch it's not to do with her job it's not to do with how she earns money um and again this is where i think ursula proves um particularly important to her um and asano as well because they're giving her connection and nurturing that she wouldn't know how to seek otherwise they they bring it to her because they are more mature than her because they they know how these things go down but they also bring that connection in a very unself-conscious way
0: theo i feel like um You've not been able to really express this, but uh, wonderful things happened before when I asked why you liked The Last Unicorn so much. You got anything on uh, Kiki's delivery service? and why? It must have, I'm assuming, hit you at the right time in your life. It,
5: it, in a way, it did. I was introduced to Miyazaki's films. Um, the first one I saw was Princess Mononoke, mm-hmm. which is a pretty heavy one to start yeah, with. Yeah, that's,
0: that's hard. Uh,
5: but... It, it, these, these films came to me in a time when I was very much not uh, in tune with myself. I would just moved out, and I was still living close to home, and I had recently made like a, a pretty big mistake, and so I was feeling very sort of untethered and lost, and I didn't know really what my center was. And these movies... I didn't really. I couldn't really articulate it at the time, but they, they sort of helped me figure out. This is strange because I don't really know how to articulate it now. But there's a comfortableness to the way everything is portrayed in Ghibli films. Mm. It's uh, even even the even the really weird stuff like in Spirited Away. Um, even the alien stuff. It feels like it feels like yeah. I, I could I could live here. I could take a vacation here.
0: I want to go to is, Stockholm, by the way. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, Ghibli music occasionally will be a um, very productive sleep aid for me. As in, like, the, I can go to sleep listening to most of the Spirited Away soundtrack. Apart from the... <laughs> bits.
1: I it's always one. Nice. <laughs> yeah.
0: But uh, Sharon, you said yesterday that Tom Hanks had a, a relaxing feeling to him. Yes. That we're watching Turner and Hooch, and he was shouting. And you were yeah. like, oh, it's... It's but lovely watching him. I mean, that may that well before.
1: be keyed into the fact that he was present in many films that I saw um, just just randomly on TV when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if we're talking about the, the whole sort of getting back to a, a state of being able to relax... The, the fact that Ursula's cabin is in the woods and, and in the countryside and surrounded by an environment that's very similar to the one that um, Kiki grew up in, but is absent that sense of expectation that comes with being around her mother, mm. basically means that she's, she's stripping things back to... Um, the, the core of who she is without any of the complicating elements that were around her before and I think Theo that sounds quite accurate to what you're describing, getting to a place where you can just be you and not be expected to do anything else but breathe until you've figured out where you're going next I think Kiki in particular,
5: the, the movie um, as well as the dog it
1: has helped me sort
5: of centre myself in just Hey, stop and and focus on the moment, and breathe, and everything's going to be fine. I I read something recently that uh, Miyazaki explained the concept of Ma, uh, which is empty space. and He he demonstrated by by clapping his hands uh, several times and explaining that the space in between the claps is Ma. And you need that empty space in between whatever's punctuating it, the action to define the action is like with with the bay films if everything is happening all the time you don't then nothing's happening
0: i thought you were going to positively compare me as to michael bay i was like whoa uh, but yeah no no, no you're absolutely we're, we're right. not they're, there they're the shoulder demon and shoulder there. angel
5: <laughs> no no it's like with bay films everything's happening all the time then nothing's everything's happening. everything's
0: super important nothing's important yeah
5: And and so with the empty space, with the space to breathe in, you know where and how you need to breathe out.
0: That is, I think maybe the secret as to why people love Ghibli so much because each in almost almost to a, uh, aside from maybe Grave of the Fireflies oh boy <laughs> Princess Mononoke is hard, Grave of the Fireflies might be the hardest film to watch but um, they each offer moments of peace and away from the turmoil, each of them effectively represents the rest that kiki is offered and so suge- has suggested to her
4: there is such a quiet power that's in this movie and it's it shows up in a couple others that i feel really resonates with a very young audience hmm. and then also reflective for an older audience because um you know, this this is one of the first Miyazakis I was exposed to, and I I really thought it was neat. And then after going into some of his other stuff, like how just visually creative and how deep the world building is in Spirited Away, or how well drawn and rich the characters and the conflicts are in in uh, Princess Mononoke, it's so easy to look at Kiki and be like, well, that's I mean that's kind of basic, you know, maybe maybe that's lesser Miyazaki. But then but then you revisit it as as an adult, like after you've had some some miles under your belt mm. and like like Theo was saying that, that concept of ma that empty space it's like oh wow no I I have lived exactly within these moments in between the other moments that that we see so just beautifully um, like just, just the process scenes that Miyazaki does where just like characters are doing things and they feel really good about how they can accomplish this small task and then it's like okay I did that and then like, no, whoops, one thing goes wrong and all that work was for nothing. And then you're just sitting there going, well, what was even the point? Mm. That, that's just so, that feels so true and so just real in spite of the fact that it's just clearly fanciful animated film with talking cats and flying girls. Mm.
0: It's neat that I mentioned Tom Hanks just now because another film that's almost exactly the same kind of suddenly this movie is blowing me away uh, is Big... His movie, and when you go back to it and watch it as an adult, you're actually relating more to Elizabeth Perkins' character. There's an uh, there are layers to that film which were never intended, specifically if you had a childhood in the '80s, uh, but that it it's it's gathered more meaning later in in life as time has gone by. And I thoroughly recommend folks uh, watch it now, especially if they can find the Blu-ray with the uh, extended cut. That's got extra stuff in there that puts it in more perspective. And we will be doing a show on that at some point uh, and take that similar uh, tact on it. Uh, What were your favourite moments and details that we haven't mentioned so far?
5: I've really grown to appreciate the, the small the well the empty spaces the the, the little quiet moments mm. that you could you could lift them out of the movie and it wouldn't affect the story but the story is richer for having them in there like one one tiny little moment i mean it's like a couple seconds where ursula and kiki are just talking in sleeping bags in in ursula's cabin And the camera cuts, well, the camera, whatever. Uh, It cuts to just a shot of Ursula's lantern and a little moth flying by. And it's like you you could have kept the the shot on Kiki and Ursula as they're talking. Uh, But there's this quiet moment of just a lantern and the light playing over and the bug flittering by. And it just adds this layer of peacefulness to it that is really quite therapeutic.
0: That reminds me, uh, when Superman first came out on home video, uh, I, I found this out in the past couple of days, they they sped it up uh, during certain scenes, because there wasn't enough the videotapes weren't long enough yet they'd have to put it across two so to save money they cut the end credits uh off the uh the end of the film we just had a quick card they sped up the regular end cre- uh, the, the intro credits and every scene without dialogue was sped up just to get it in under that like they, they cut off 23 minutes in the end that's a lot of superman And that means that all of those moments of quiet and taking in, I'm going to imagine, a lot of Krypton and a lot of Smallville Mm -hmm. just to take in who, where he comes from and who he is as he's growing up. That's dispensed with for everyone who's watching it on video. And
1: a lot of those aerial shots you were talking about earlier as well. As
0: they grab you and surf you through (laughs) Superman.
5: (laughs) And that's absolutely essential to understanding who Clark Kent is as Mm -hmm. a person. Just as a character, and you you skip all that. It's, it's just a guy in a tights flying around.
0: Yeah. Thank goodness for DVD and flipper mm-hmm. discs.
4: <laughs> <laughs> the 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 way it it makes sure to to sense out its characters. There's. There's actually a very tight structure to this. It's got very defined three acts. It's got the all-is-lost moment at just about the right point in time, and it escalates to this really cool like rescue action climax after which it's like, okay, we saved the day, end credits, boom, done. Um, but it, it feels very naturalistic in the way it discovers its narrative. Um, we're so used to Pixar and how they're almost like machine worked stories with like okay this is the this is the narrative and it's so tightly tuned and constructed and it's perfectly functional but you can also kind of like see the you can see the diagram almost um even even with some of their truly great recent films it's like okay yeah that's a very definitely workshopped tightly tuned pixar screenplay miyazaki it feels like you're discovering this and it just happens to coincide with a very well structured film, um, to to the point where, like, when you're in this big action climax, this this beautiful Joe Hisaishi score that's been going through this entire time, it would be so easy for for the um, the rule book to say, okay, this is where the music picks up and kicks in. You have this big thumping triumphant score for the rescue. Instead, it's almost completely silent, and it's just the wind and and her exertions and. And it's and so like it feels more naturalistic and discovered um, as opposed to something that was pre predestined, you know.
1: Um, for me, I think it's the it's the thing I love about all uh, Miyazaki stuff, and that's the the effortlessness with which he slips mythology and fairy tale um, elements into the story. Little things in this, like the the presence of the crows. And the the black dress that you know everybody's going to know she's a witch because of the black dress, the red shoes. Just they're sometimes they're plot centric and sometimes they're made a big deal of, but not always by any means. They just go into building a world that feels like it fits with old stories, old myths. It's exactly the same thing that I love about Guillermo del Toro. Um, But um, but yeah, that that is. It's lighter in here than it is in something like Spirited Away, but it's still there in such prevalence.
0: Mm. Lara, Annie?
1: One of my
6: favourite bits, unsurprisingly, is Gigi supporting Kiki Mm -hmm. and talking to the animals, talking to Jeff, talking to the crows, talking to geese, talking to Lily, all of that. I I just find it fascinating and... um, The person that played Gigi, Phil Hartman, Hartman. Hartman, Hartman. he did a magnificent
7: job.
0: He did. Gigi might be my favourite character in the book because his being sardonic prevents it from being too twee to oh toto like imagine if toto could talk back when uh, uh they go like that's another reference to the uh, r- ruby slippers oh, if toto's like well we're not in kansas anymore dorothy <laughs> <laughs> it just like it, it just cuts through the treacle in the words of bart simpson and at the same time it allows you and gives you license to go oh shut up Gigi, and actually appreciate the things like without that little bit of sardonic you aren't really given license to fully embrace it it's why it being quite hard-nosed in Superman which you've been watching a lot lately uh, you know, allows you to, to, to grab hold of Superman himself and that measure of purity because at least your misgivings have been voiced along with Kiki's herself it's, it's, it's a wonderful performance and he also ad-libbed a lot of the lines which they thankfully left in to the uh, original American language track and if you listen to the Japanese uh, version, Gigi sounds like Pikachu. It's like, oh, it's, gosh! it's not the same oh, yeah. personality at all. It's, a, it's. A, I would imagine it's a very different film, and I haven't watched it in Japanese for a long while. As a result,
3: yeah, I'm not.
4: I'm not a huge proponent of subs versus dubs or anything. Like, I figure it's all. You know, it's it's getting dubbed after the fact in in both languages, regardless. So I, I, I just enjoy like finding whichever version works for whatever mood I'm in. The uh, the additional later
0: American language track restored the Japanese music and including the soaring is gone from the beginning. And the uh, uh, music track at the end, and they replaced them with the originals, which seems a bit kind of like snooty, <laughs> almost like you were trying to undo... Things which were done well in in the first place, but they also, and this is almost unforgivable, scaled back a lot of those ad libs I mentioned from Phil Hartman. A video we watched by Brightside Ewan attributed these changes to Disney, and it's called How Kiki's Delivery Service Got George lucas But digging deeper, it seems they were implemented in 2010 by Studio Ghibli of Japan themselves, when they started putting out their collection on Blu-ray. Revising the American cut to be closer to the Japanese original, here's the train sequence of the one that we grew up with.
9: Gigi, you've got to come see the ocean. It's beautiful.
2: Big deal. Just a big puddle of water.
9: Look, up ahead.
2: Mm hmm. And this would be interesting because. It's a
9: city floating on waves. Isn't it wonderful?
2: It's all right, I guess.
9: How lovely.
2: And here's the revised version.
9: Wow! Gigi, you've gotta come see the ocean! It's beautiful!
2: Big deal. Just a big puddle of water.
9: Look! Up ahead! How lovely!
0: It just feels emptier, more aloof, more removed. A little more innocent. And the mentality behind these changes, effectively gating the version that we loved back into standard definition on a now very hard to find in some places DVD, is indeed very George Lucas Star Wars, although the original trilogy never even got that far and were halted at Laserdisc and VHS in the mid-90s. I can confirm that the American and UK Blu-ray of Kiki's delivery service are... This second revised version. It has one other language track on it, and that is the Japanese one. So either way, Gonna Fly and Soaring are gone. Along with Hartman's humour, a lot of the piano music that we love, the credits for the American localization team, and the touching dedication to Hartman at the end. Because the year this was released in America, Phil Hartman's wife killed him. And it would have been as easy as pie to include this original language track as a third option, simply a matter of leaving one box ticked during digital processing. Ghibli actively denied that to the world, and the children of the future. For me, personally, I found a way around it, re-editing the Blu-ray with the audio from the DVD which matches up perfectly, regardless of region. So I possess a version that looks and sounds exactly how I love. But like with my re-edited cuts of the Star Wars trilogy, that's just the version that plays at the Shaw household. Everyone else has to go without. And I care about everyone else. Currently, on UK Netflix, you can watch this hybrid version, which I just described, which is baffling, because it suggests that the HD film with original American audio absolutely exists and was included when Netflix loaned the rights to show the Ghibli collection. It's just on Netflix, which means it could evaporate into thin air tomorrow and never come back. Like the Making of Return of the Jedi book by J.W. Rinsler on the Kindle Store. I bought the Star Wars book by him, I bought the Empire book by him, and I was waiting on Jedi until I'd finished Empire, and then, before I could buy it, it vanished and will never come back. So I have two thirds of a digital collection and a massive and extremely expensive book that I had to find on eBay, which by the way, didn't give JW Rinsler any money. This is literally, shut up and take my money, Kindle! But even if I somehow had bought the making of Return of the Jedi, before it was yanked off the store, for the time being, yeah, I could probably still keep downloading it. But at some point in the future, that connection would be lost And anyone who doesn't already have theirs on their Kindle, which by the way, have finite battery life and are designed to die and require upgrading, anyone who doesn't have those digital versions may never be able to get hold of them again. Certain games on certain marketplaces are now inaccessible, even if you did buy them. You want to settle down to an evening of playing P.T. and Flappy Bird, forget it! And this is why I will never, ever trust streaming as a means of experiencing media. Discs are not permanent. They can be lost or damaged or degrade over time. But at least we can actively take care of them. Digital libraries remain forever in flux and at the whim of the purse string holders, licensing and copyright law. That's why wherever I go in the world, I have to bring my Blu-rays with me. And in celebration of the concept of allowing all versions to remain available for future generations, I republished the first edition of Secret Rooms in paperback form. It's available on Amazon. It's not as good. Those nine additional chapters detailing the shady past of our heroes that I added to the book in 2018, three years after it had originally been published, really did make it better. But even though I don't advise anyone get this over the definitive edition... I like to practice what I preach. So yeah, you want the original version of Secret Rooms? It's there, fill your boots. But you won't be paying any money to the author because I'm selling this one at cost. Again, don't buy it. By the definitive edition, it's way better. Soaring by Sydney Forrest who also sang Gonna Fly and was very saddened to hear of their excising from the revised American version. And I hope my rant just now is horribly dated already and that this version that everyone loved has been restored. Uh, right, so I've, I've got a couple of things down that I uh, uh, loved and little uh, details and then we're out of here. So the es- excitement of starting afresh in a new city there is something really electric about looking out at the sea when you're settling in for your first night in somewhere that you intend to be for a while. That is a... it's It's got the spirit of adventure there and the fact that Gigi immediately says after this, can we go somewhere else? It, it just suggests that she's... Shut she's, up, Gigi. She can't even drink in this moment without the misgivings being there. That's mm-hmm. excellent. Um, there's a peaceful bustle to this city. It's, it's, a, it's wonderful and, and uh, it feels... Like everyone's busy, but that it's not unfriendly like somewhere like New York. People will stop and and stare at you, uh, but they won't. Um, like you know, if you're about to fly, but you're not going to meet outright hostility or jeering. Like even the kids who are a bit baffled by her, they don't. They're not outwardly horrible. So again, it feels therapeutic to be here, which is ironic since Kiki has to sort of take a break from just being here. Um. And be in the moment herself, to some degree. Uh, Asana being pregnant visibly shows why she needs a hand now that she might not have needed before. So that gives Kiki a very straightforward and very honest in with her. I love the way they animate Jeff the dog. That seemed to come from someplace that was very familiar with the carefully paced movements of an old canine. One of the kids in the car is wearing Canada's jacket. No, oh, that's right. <laughs> I'd never noticed it before until today. And that uh, Akira only came out like a year before the original Kiki's Delivery service. So that was a very quick um, little. They'll stick that one in there. That's, I would imagine, an animator or maybe Miyazaki himself decided on that one. Also at the end, when Kiki's deliberating over her shoes again and probably has now earned enough money to be able to get these special red shoes, uh, a kid gets led past uh, by her mother, dressed as Kiki, which again draws comparison with Spider-Man, who has kids dress up as him. Mm. Um, And just also listening to Tress McNeil, Phil Hartman and Janine Garofalo in any film is, is just going to be extremely appealing. Uh, and I'm also going to guess that Ursula, the character, is named after Ursula Le Guin, writer of the Earthsea book, Since I think it was Miyazaki's son directed Tales from Earthsea as a much later on Ghibli oh. film. I could be wrong on that. Maybe it was just co- coincidence. entirely coincidence. Yeah. But uh, yeah. But the thing, the the bit that really stuck with me and just made me tear up was Ursula. Effectively taking Kiki on holiday and making a fuss of her, giving her candy, taking her... so Rather than just letting her languish in her room, changing her scene, changing her scenery, giving her, as you say, Sharon, license to set this down, it, it, it felt very, very important to me to, to see her being led towards a period of, of revival and renewal and by a symbolic big sister that she doesn't seem to have outside of this city because it's sometimes really, really difficult to actually get there on your own. You need to be given permission. This film is a reminder of one of the most comforting notions that we can conceive of, one that seems more elusive every year as our worries mount up and unite against us. Sometimes when the weight of everything is crushing down, what we often need most is someone with a lightness of spirit to catch hold of our shoulder and tell us with confidence and honesty in their voice. Rest now, you're going to be alright.
8: I decided to become an artist. I loved to paint so much. I'd paint all day until I fell asleep right at my easel. And then one day, for some reason, I just couldn't paint anymore. I tried and tried, but nothing I did seemed any good. They were copies of paintings I'd seen somewhere before. And not very good copies either. I just felt like I'd lost my ability. That sounds like me. It's exactly the same, but then I found the answer. You see, I hadn't figured out what or why I wanted to paint. I had to discover my own style. When you fly, you rely on what's inside of you, don't you? Uh Uh-huh, we fly with our spirit. Trusting your spirit, yes, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That same spirit is what makes me paint and makes your friend bake, but we each need to find our own inspiration, Kiki. Sometimes it's not easy. I guess I never gave much thought to why I wanted to
9: do this. I got so caught up in all the training and stuff. Maybe I have to find my own inspiration. But am I ever going to find it? And is it worth all the trouble?
8: Well, for example, there were quite a few times when I thought of painting something over that painting. But it ended up being so great. So I guess it's worth it. Today when I saw you I thought, I want to paint. You've got such a great face. (gasps) That's why I came? (laughs) Hey, well, it's better than you cleaning my floor again. (laughs) Let's turn out the lights and go to sleep. Okay. Sorry about taking your bed from you. Ah, no problem. So you really think I'll fly again? Sure. You'll just have to wait for the right inspiration to come along. You understand? Uh Uh-huh. Hmm.
0: And before we go to our guests, where can listeners find your best work?
4: Um, yes, uh, you can read stuff that I write on Synapse. That's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O. Uh, I've been contributing to the, the Two Cents Movie a Week column there. Um, I also write long stuff on normannerd.blogspot.com. And I've been a recurring guest on the Matinee Heroes podcast. Um, I was on the The Dark Knight Rises show. We just recorded one on escape, John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Uh, so you can find me there, and if you uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, God knows why you would want to do that, but you can. It's still legal. Uh, I'm at agnew on twitter.com. Thank you. And Thea?
5: Well, you can see all the photos of my dog Kiki on my Twitter at uh, 1000 Days of Rain. And I'm on a audio drama called New Century that everyone should listen to.
0: You may have heard of it. <laughs>
7: But I dream of being out of this palace. I know I shouldn't, and I'm supposed to be a good little girl, but all the best intentions and warnings and reprimands in the world can't stop my mind from wandering off. It betrays me, you know, my mind as I sleep. In my dreams, I fly over the fields of England, through the night sky with all laid out before me like an embroidered blanket, I wish I could take you up there, Viola. Flying onward and upward with the wind whipping through my hair. Truly free. (laughs) I wake up with my heart beating so fast. Afraid I'm going to fall, but so excited. It takes me a moment to remember who I am. And then I'm in here again. And my whole life is laid out before me like an exquisitely crafted... One of a kind China tea set.
0: That was Theo in her wonderful performance as Princess Gwendolyn in The Princess Thieves, available on Bandcamp. And if you haven't heard it before and you buy it now, every penny I make throughout July, August, and September on Bandcamp will be divided across three Black Lives Matter related charities. And you can also hear Theo in The New Century Fancast Through the Wind Door where she just did a two-part interview, and where they're currently analysing chapter-by-chapter chapter, Secret Rooms Definitive Edition, which is also available on Bandcamp. And both School of Movies and the New Century Multiverse are funded by... Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Angus Lee, Kevin Vaye, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Johan Clayson, Joe Gasega, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolf, Matthew A. Siebert, Kat Esman, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Toby Yungius, Dave Hickman, Tom Painter, Dan Hetner, Marty Huey, Mark Lux, Brian Novak, Frankie Punzi, Aaron Lecluze, Lorraine Chisholm, Timothy Green, Cassandra Newman, Duran Barnett, Benjamin, Joseph Gluck, Greg Downing, Kieran Dashler, Dan Mayer, Jamis Enright, Nick Ord, David Sheely, Chris Finnick, Joe Crow, and once again, thank you very much to the commissioners of this episode, Aaron Good. And guests Theo Lee and Brendan Agnew. And we will be back next week as the commissions season continues with Flight of the Navigator. Yay! Yay. I've been Alex Shaw.
1: I've been Sharon Shaw. I've been Lyra Shaw.
0: And school's, school's out. That. Hi, I'm Phil Hartman. You may remember me from such movies as part of Kiki's Delivery Service.
2: Hey... Message for Sleepyhead. Wake up, you're supposed to be minding the store.
9: I am, but today this place is boring.
2: But it always gets busy about this time.
9: I know that. That's not what I mean. I mean my customers. Gigi, if nobody comes in, I'm going to have to eat pancakes forever and be fat, fat, fat! And what am I supposed to do about that?
2: Well, I like pancakes, provided they're not burned.
9: Uh Look, furball, when you get as fat and round as a pancake, you see if I care.
0: Oh, one more thing I absolutely love, and that is the signage in the town of Corico. There's a lot of symbols in the shape of the things that are being sold on those premises. And these kind of signs date back to a time before the general public could read. So you see a sign made out of knotted bread? That's a bakery. You see a sign of a girl on a broomstick with a pointy hat? That's a witch you can rent.
9: Gigi, climb up and turn on the radio. I don't think I can handle it. Can you do it?
0: Oh, great. Now I'm the flight attendant, is what he should have said.
10: 아니,
6: you, aren't you?
9: Yep, how'd you guess? I just left home tonight. Mhm. <clears throat> Would you mind turning off that radio? I prefer to fly without being distracted. Oh, yeah, sure.
0: Here is what Gigi says at the very end in the current American version.
8: just got a letter from Kiki.
3: Huh? <gasps> oh. <sighs>
8: Dear mother and father, how are you doing?
2: I'm happy to say that Gigi and I are doing fine at the moment.
9: My delivery service is a big success. I've really started to gain some confidence and everything is falling into place. There are still some times when I feel a little homesick. But all in all, I sure love this city.
0: Now if you love the Japanese version that's absolutely fine from the sounds of it it will always be an option for you but this version is the one that is currently no longer an option
2: Kiki can you hear me and
5: i
3: thought i was a goner for sure but my friend kiki saved me Gigi! Uh, she's just a- that oh. a yeah that's all one day. <laughs> Okay.